I was sort of staggered. Why hadn't I ever been taught about these women? Why, why weren't they included in mainstream art histories? Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This is the second episode in a short series talking to artists or those involved in art who moved from Australia and ended up in London. For this second episode, I speak with writer and critic Jennifer Higgy. Jennifer is one of my favourite arts writers. Born in Australia and later moving to London in her late 20s, Jennifer has held editorial roles at Freeze magazine for over two decades, from the late 1990s until 2021. A few years ago, she began posting about women artists on Instagram, which gained a mass following and led to the Bow Down podcast on women artists. With Jennifer in London and myself in Melbourne, we talk via Zoom about Jennifer's earlier life as an artist, her move to London, and her time at Freeze magazine. We also chat about the nature of arts criticism and the experience of editing a renowned publication. We also speak about her latest book, The Mirror and the Palette, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits. Published only last year, it's a brilliant book that looks at women in art history from the 1500s onwards, focusing on women artists who at some point painted self-portraits. And before we get started, a very kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Lenagel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Sydney and Melbourne. You're known as a writer and an art critic and as the editor of Freeze magazine for over a two-decade period, but it's really interesting to me that you started off as a painter and that the writing came later, but even then, from what you've said in other interviews, it took someone prompting you to even consider going to art school. (laughs) Gosh, that's a long time ago. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd never particularly excelled at art, uh, you know, in high school. But I just found myself, it was in Canberra, and I'd gone to uni for a year, but I wasn't particularly happy there. Then I found myself, I was living in a group house in Ainsley, which is just at the base of Mount Ainsley in Canberra, which is sort of a beautiful hill covered in a lot of bush and tracks. And and um, I was, I kept walking up there and, and drawing, and I was, I just found myself sort of instinctively drawing, which was quite strange because it wasn't something I'd done a lot before. You know, this is when I was in my sort of late teens. Mm. And um, then a friend said, why don't you think about going to art school? And I guess I'd never considered that any talent or, you know, it was just something that I was doing from a deep urge, not through any idea of ambition or anything like that. And and then it sort of, it was like a light bulb moment. So I applied for art school thinking there's no way I'm going to get in. (laughs) And then I got into the Canberra School of Art and I was there for four years and it was really, you know, it was amazing. It was really like I'd come home. It was like I'd found my people. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and uh, yeah, so I did painting there and I absolutely loved it. And and then I went from there to um, VCA uh, after a break of a couple of years. I went to VCA and did an MA in painting there. For someone who does focus so much on women in art history in your writing and particularly the later writing, mm. did you feel early on at art school like, was it really apparent to you that women in art history were marginalised? No, you know, it was, I think I only understood that fully retrospectively. I mean, I had wonderful teachers at art school and, you know, there was an incredibly convivial and supportive environment and I didn't feel in any way excluded as a as a female student at art school. And But it was, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about art history at that point. So I just assumed that the narratives that we were told about women in art history that, you know, 
essentially there weren't many um, in Western art history, that is. Um, you know, I sort of accepted that narrative. And it wasn't until much later when I became a writer and I started sort of digging into art histories and coming across, you know, really extraordinary you know, women artists from the Middle Ages, from the Renaissance, from the Baroque period. And it was like, well, why didn't, why wasn't I taught about these, these people? But you look at the main art history books, the Western art history books, you know, like Jansen's History of Art. And, you know, in their first publications, they didn't include any women at all in, in these books. Mm. And that was in 1950, wasn't it? The first one was published. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that was relatively, and, you know, it's, it's ironic considering that, you know, Giorgio Versace who was the great art historian of the Renaissance, um, and he was writing about his contemporaries. You know, in the second edition of his Lives of the Painters, he included 13 women. So, <laughs> you know, it was it was quite funny that by the time we get to the 20th century, women are being excluded in a way that they hadn't necessarily been before. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Did you feel any sense of self-consciousness being a young woman painter? No, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing I... I remember that I, I lacked confidence, that, that, but that was possibly just me too. A lot of my um, friends who were male painters, they they had a sense of confidence and certainty about what they were doing, which I didn't have. But I'm, I'm not necessarily blaming that on patriarchal structures because they were very supportive of me and very kind. So I think that might have been my own sense of exclusion. You know, and and at, at that time, I mean, we were being taught about, um, you know, feminist art and, and you know, reading all the great feminist texts such as, you know, Linda Nochlin. But, I, you know, I think confidence was a personal thing for me. Yeah. It's so like you were saying, you studied your undergrad in fine art in Canberra and then your master's in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And then you eventually moved to London mm -hmm. in what I understand was sort of your late 20s, which was in the early 1990s. And uh, actually, it was no. 1997, I think it was. Yeah. But then in the first episode of this series, I talked with your friend, David Noonan, mm. and he relayed the story of you winning an art award and using that mm. as the kind of springboard to come to London. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, that was quite a funny story. Um, that was the Murdoch Fellowship, which was offered up by BCA. And um, David and I, David Noonan, who's a, is still a very close friend of mine, we were both um, up for it and uh, we were sharing a house at that time in, in Fitzroy and um, it was, I remember it was a really hot night and we thought, will we go to the opening awards? And we thought, um, or rather the announcement, and we thought, oh, look, we're not going to win it, and you know, but, oh, all right, let's go along, <laughs> a lot of our friends will be there. And and we sort of made a very jokey vow to each other that if by some miracle one of us did win it, we'd take the other one with us. And uh, <laughs> then we got there and then one of my paintings was behind the rostrum and it was like, what? And then when they announced that I'd won it, I almost fell over. And <laughs> so David, David looked at me and said, we're going to London. Oh, so, yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, <laughs> it was very unexpected. Yeah, did you... Just pretend you hadn't won that award. Mm. Do you think you would have gone to London anyway? Was there just that real desire to leave Australia? Um, at that point, I was too broke. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I I was restless. You know, I really loved Melbourne and I still love Melbourne and I have great friends there and, you know, I love Melbourne's sense of community and I thought VCA was amazing. I had an incredible time there. And, um, you know, and there were at that time in the 90s, there were so many artists run spaces, you know, it was a great education in really thinking about what art was for and how to make it without the pressures of 
the commercial art world because at that point there were hardly any commercial galleries and we just weren't thinking like that. We weren't thinking about art and commerce. We were thinking about art and self-expression. So, you know, I was waitressing while I was painting and, you know, I really loved Melbourne, but I also felt a great sense of restlessness. You know, I really wanted to explore the world and um, I didn't feel that I I was ready to settle down or anything. So, you know, I did. I did want to travel. I did want to come to London. I was interested in what was happening in the art scene here in London, and you know, and I, I'm. I've always been very interested in European art, and so I, I wanted to explore Europe as well. So, and the great collections of Europe. So, you know, I probably would have come over somehow, but at that point, I was stone cold broke as a waitress. So. Yes. You know, it would have been hard without the Murdoch Fellowship. Yeah, yeah. And even when you moved to London, I mean, you talked about still working as a waitress in a cafe in Soho. Mm. And you've kind of joked, but also not really joked, about the amount of Australian artists and musicians who also worked at that cafe. <laughs> and I was wondering yes. what that period was like, because it, it sounds like a struggle, but it also sounds kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an amazing, you know, period in my life in that, you know, David and I were here and the money ran out fairly quickly from the fellowship. So David found us a job in a Soho cafe called Aurora, which was great. It was a wonderful little cafe on Lexington Street. What was good about that cafe was that, you know, as as a waitress, you can always just pick and choose your shifts. So it doesn't sort of lock you into some grinding routine. And mm. so we could go traveling when we wanted or or have extra shifts if we were particularly broke. And I like the idea of waitressing too because it didn't sort of mess with your mind in the way a sort of boring office job might. Mm. And so it left, left, you know, you free to think about painting or about writing. Um, yeah, and there were, you know, there were lots of people coming through London at the time and, you know, we were very broke, you know, it was, and that was a constant grind and a constant source of anxiety. But, um, you know, London was really exciting. And, you know, even now, 25 years later, I'm still discovering London. So it's this sort of source of infinite fascination and full of riches. And, you know, I loved going, for example, to the National Gallery and just, you know, it's free and you can go in there and spend your lunchtime, you know, gazing at a Titian or Mm. any other number of, you know, amazing paintings. And, you know, there was a really interesting art scene happening here and, you know, going to the openings and it was very international. Like even now, you know, my friends come from about 20 countries. Everyone has somehow found a home in London. And so it's, you know, it's a very tough place to live. It's very expensive. It's huge. It's infinite, but it's also a source of infinite riches and inspiration and it's close to Europe. So, you know, it was a very exciting and very challenging time as well. And I think what was really particularly good about it was that I'd always been a secret writer and in Australia, because I was an artist and I trained as an artist, I didn't have the confidence to be public about being interested in writing. But because I was in London and no one knew me and I could make a fool of myself, (laughs) you know, who cares? Um, it gives you a certain confidence. And so um, it was after a few years of waitressing and painting and I was feeling disillusioned with the pictures I was making and the work I was doing. So I started writing more and more and then I thought I'm going to be an eternal waitress. So I thought I had to think of alternative ways of sort of making a living. So I sent sent a, a letter, not even an email, but a letter <laughs> to Freeze magazine with um, I think it was one review that I'd done in Australia. I sent a piece of writing off. And after about three months, I got a reply from the editor of Freeze, or the, rather the reviews editor of Freeze, who was a wonderful man called James Roberts. 
And he said he liked it and to come in. I couldn't believe it. I fell off my chair. So I went went into the tiny freeze office, which was then about six people working in um, a little office in Denmark Street in Soho, which was a wonderful sort of ramshackle little street, which was really associated with musicians. And uh, met James and I was terrified. And we talked and he was great and really interesting person and very supportive and talked about still life, which was what I was really interested in at the time. And he said, he asked if I'd seen the Andy Warhol show at Anthony DeFay Gallery at the time, which was Andy Warhol's Still Lives and Vanitas, Soul Portraits. And I had, and so he commissioned a review of that. And I remember I spent about a month writing those 700 words. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was my first review in Freeze. And then it sort of went on from there. So, you know, there was a great sense of possibility here, you know, that you could reinvent yourself. And I, I did really like that. So there was no self-consciousness about coming from Australia and maybe having an Australian accent and then entering this, you know, very international arts stage like London? Um, no, I don't remember feeling self-conscious about it. I mean, one of the things actually that really impressed me was I got here and I I had this sort of feeling like, oh, you know, the art, art in London is going to be, you know, it's going to be at a different level to what we were making in Melbourne. And actually I got here and thinking, you know, everyone in Melbourne was as good as the people who were showing here. Mm. You know? So, so um, you know, that was, I, I had a source of pride about being Australian as well and and how great. Australian artists were so I didn't feel any sense of inferiority or anything like that and I actually I think funnily enough my Australianness worked well in in the art world London because people in England couldn't quite place can't quite place Australians class-wise mm, and, and Britain's yeah. such a class-riven society you know I think it frees the fact that I came from Australia that I didn't have allegiances in the in the British art world you know, that I could be maybe a bit more neutral meant that actually they were happy to give me reviewing jobs. They felt like I might be a bit more impartial than someone, say, who'd gone to Goldsmiths or something because they would have been part of the scene. Right. But you've also talked about having a crisis with your painting practice. Mm. And I feel like a crisis of an art form in your late 20s slash early 30s is pretty mm. common. And maybe I'm just noticing that because I just turned 30 and it's mm. all around me. Yeah. But I was wondering, what was your crisis in particular? It was, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. And in a, in a way, it's a very hard question to answer because it was funny because at that point, you know, I'd, I was showing my work widely, well, not widely, but, you know, I was showing it. I'd been bought by a few collections like the NGV, you know, so ostensibly I I was doing okay. But I think I had this crisis of I didn't know what I wanted my work to be doing, like what its function was, what I could add to the discourse, mm. you know, that if I painted a, a still life, was it, you know, I was very self-critical and looking back, I think I was probably too harsh on myself. And perhaps unconsciously too, I had this very strong urge to write and I hadn't quite acknowledged that or something. And I had, I was making these, what I rather grandly called sort of conceptual still life paintings. But then I was getting really interested in other forms of expression. I think the very last show I had in Melbourne was actually video with music and Schubert and some text pieces and you know so I was sort of exploring what art could be but I was confusing myself in the process and so I gave myself a year out to 
stop putting pressure on myself to just explore art in whatever form I wanted to do it. And that turned into writing. And I thought I would only do that for about a year and then return to making objects, paintings. But I didn't. And it's possibly because, too, after about a year, I got offered this reviews editor job at Freeze. Mm -hmm. And I remember the sort of confusion of like, what? I'm going to work for a magazine, but I'm an artist. What am I doing? Um, but frankly, the, you know, the economic imperative was so amazing to, I mean, it was a tiny salary and it was three days a week. I mean, it wasn't really much more than waitressing mm. I was being offered. But it was regular and it was, you know, I'd be paid every month. And I was going into this office that was filled with really interesting people and we had really interesting discussions. And so I started reviewing, writing about art as a way of trying to work out my own relationship to pictures. That was that was my overwhelming impulse. And then that just sort of took over. Yeah. So, and I remember feeling a sense of relief that I wasn't making objects and I wasn't exhibiting. But, you know, it's, I think that if I probably hadn't been offered that job at Freeze, I would have kept making objects. I know that sounds like a mass confusion, which it was. No, no, so, it um, sounds really interesting. Mm. Did you ever miss the making of art? I really did. Yeah. And I still do. And I've sort of started making it again, just privately. I, but I, I also felt like I, I never felt like I stopped being an artist in a way because I turned that energy into, you know, I wrote a novel, a very sort of, for want of a better word, experimental sort of novel about this 19th century painter, Richard Dadd. And that was a very sort of free flowing, sort of like a very long prose poem that became a novel. And so I felt my creativity was channeled in those ways. I, I wrote a script about being a waitress and, you know, so I felt that that was another form of creativity. I made a children's book where I made the pictures. And even in my writing for Freeze, a lot of that, I felt like it was very creatively driven. I never particularly thought of myself as a critic because I, I didn't feel like I could quite go over to the other side because I had been an artist myself and I was never interested in putting the boot in or tearing someone's practice apart. I was more interested in writing about the things that I felt enthusiastic about. Or, I mean, I did write a few critical reviews, but they're very few and far between. I mean, I guess that's kind of like uh, maybe a more personal understanding of arts criticism. Is that mm. kind of what you think mm. of arts criticism in general as? No. I mean, I think that, you know, there are very many different ways of responding to a works of art in writing you know mine is just one of them and you know there are absolutely brilliant critics you know I love reading or there are very there are critics who respond to a work of art in poetry or even in a visual essay or in a painting or in a film so you know I think I think one of the really wonderful things about this moment in time is that there are so many different ways of responding to the world um, be it visually or with words and um, so I would never become rigid about that. Something I love about your writing is that I feel like you always try and pinpoint why an artist or an exhibition matters, not just in art historical terms, but also in terms of actual life and what an artwork gives its viewers. Is that a conscious... Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's just wonderful writing. Is that a conscious decision on your part to do away with really overly academic and intellectualized language on art? I mean, for me, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that, I mean, I, I was at art school, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And, 
you know, especially when I did my undergrad, um, French theory was really prevalent. And, you know, I have nothing against French theory. There are incredibly brilliant and insightful philosophers and writers working, you know, in that field. But I think what was damaging was that, you know, I went straight into art school without having studied philosophy. And I couldn't understand that language. You know, I didn't understand the context, you know, and a lot of that writing comes out of, you know, very rich philosophical traditions. And so I think it was quite damaging and inhibiting for quite a lot of young artists, feeling that they had to somehow aspire to articulate their work in those terms, which wasn't, A, fully understood by a lot of us, and B, wasn't particularly relevant to what we were trying to do. I mean, back then, words like instinct, imagination, the spirit world, God, I could I could go on and on about that. You know, all of those words were considered sort of really uncool. You know, <laughs> you can't talk about these things because, you know, art is a language that is a construct that fits within a certain tradition and you have to be able to justify it in these very specific terms. And, you know, that was – and I actually – Thinking about it, that was one of the reasons I stopped making work. And, you know, more and more, the the artists who I particularly, uh, many of the artists who I really loved and who, whose work moved me were dealing in very mysterious, were responding rather to very mysterious impulses that not even they could fully understand, but which were manifested in works of art that were extraordinary. And so more and more, the, the work that I personally understand and relate to deals with those sort of languages. And I'm not saying that the work that doesn't deal with those languages isn't any good. Of course it is. And there's incredibly rich and interesting work that I'm not particularly interested in that is dealing with its own traditions. But And so I, I was more and more attracted to a writing around art that could explore these areas that could accommodate the mystery of what an image is. And, um, you know, I wanted to write in a way that was accessible to people who hadn't done, you know, a master's degree in philosophy, you know. And so that was, I, I did make a very concerted vow that that would be the kind of writing I would do. And frankly, that was the only kind of writing I could do. I'm not an academic and I didn't train in that way. And I think that the way that, you know, writing around art that is an academic is equally valid. Is that how you view things as an editor? Mm. And I think also particularly as an editor of a magazine that is so internationally renowned where mm. you really are kind of setting the discourse on mm. what's getting talked about and how it's getting talked about. Freeze was an extraordinary education for me, you know, 20 years or so of, you know, having the great honour of commissioning and editing such an amazing cross-section of writers. And, you know, we did have, of course, we published a lot of academics in Freeze, but they were academics who could communicate in a very clear and straightforward way that wasn't using jargon, that wasn't using terms that only people who were trained in an academic tradition could understand. And, you know, one of the things I'm very proud about at Freeze was that we were all very committed to publishing a broad range of writers and writing that could respond to what was happening in the art world from myriad angles. They were always wonderful writers in whatever field that they were writing about. I was I was not interested in publishing a magazine that stuck to a rigid line or that or that was ideologically rigid. You know, it was very important that we had multiple voices responding to art always. To go back to something you said a little bit earlier where you kind of talked about how words like 
you know, imagination and intuition mm. and instinct don't um, readily make it, you know, into the language on talking about art. And I feel, and I wonder if you feel the same way that that is potentially changing. And I feel like it's perhaps related to like, you know, the Hilma F. Clint show and just, and I also wondered if it was related to women becoming more recognized in art and art history. When I say that about words like imagination and intuition, that was very much in the 80s and early 90s. Okay, Definitely, yeah. it doesn't apply now. You know, I think that one of the really beautiful things about the art world now is that it's very much more accommodating and respectful of multiple viewpoints. And I mean, I feel like your Instagram account, where a few years ago you began posting each day about a woman artist and then how that led to the Bow Down podcast centered on women artists. I mean, that relates back to that so much. But was there like a moment of impetus for that Instagram? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to think back to what, what started me off. And it, I think it was simply that in my writing and at Freeze, we were really committed to including voices that had formerly been excluded, you know, around gender, around sexuality, around culture, around race. So the more I looked into that um, and we looked into it as a team, you know, the more astonished I was about these exclusions. And as a woman, I was particularly interested in what those exclusions were around women in art history. So I started the Instagram account really as a form of self-education. You know, mm. I, I set myself the challenge of trying to find a woman who was born on this particular day throughout history. And it was really hard at first, you know. Then the more I dug into it, the more I discovered and I would put them into my iPhone calendar so that I, with alerts for every year. And then I started getting alerts every day of the year, you know, <laughs> and it was really exciting. And I was sort of staggered at why hadn't I ever been taught about these women? Why why weren't they included in mainstream art mm. histories? And so it sort of just grew like that. And I found it personally really fascinating. And then I realised that, you know, there was an audience out there for this as well and that a lot of people were interested in this. And, um, yeah, so it just sort of went from there. Yeah, and I, and I really want to talk about your latest book as well, The Mirror in the Palette, because I loved mm. it. And Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's terrific and it, you know, recounts the lives of women artists from the 1500s onwards who at some point mm. all painted a self-portrait. And among just the, the brilliance of the stories of these women's lives, one of the reasons why I also really loved it is that I always feel that particularly when a woman paints a self-portrait, it's sometimes seen in terms of vanity and certainly not in terms of introspection or radicalism. Mm. And I feel like your book really showed actually how radical a self-portrait can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to sort of emphasise with the book was that I wasn't talking about woman as if a woman is one thing. You know, mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, history shows that there are so many ways of being a, a woman in the world and a self-portrait can reveal just some of the ways. You know, for example, you might, a woman might do a self-portrait because she only had access to herself because she was barred from the life room, because she wasn't allowed to go to the academy, because, you know, she was uh, excluded from studying history painting. So she had a mirror and a palette. That's why I called my book that. She had access to a subject that she knew more than anything about, which was herself. 
Um, but, you know, the women who painted self-portraits, who I include in my book, pa- painted them for, you know, many, many different reasons. You know, they they painted them as a calling card. They painted them to explore their own psychology. They painted them because, as mentioned, because they were the only subject they had available. They painted themselves to explore their place in the world, say, Rita Angus in New Zealand, looking at herself as a European woman in the midst of Maori culture. You know, what does that mean? She painted herself exploring her position in art history, like Amrita Shergill, the extraordinary Indian Hungarian painter who painted a self-portrait as a Tahitian. So she's riffing on the idea of Gauguin, for example. Um, you know, there are so many different ways of being a woman, of being an artist, as painting a self-portrait. And that's what I really wanted to explore, to explore the myriad ways of living in the world as a woman and as an artist. How hard is it to research a book like that, particularly when it seems it was potentially really only from the you know 1970s onwards that there was serious research and mm. scholarship in the field? I mean, there is, you know, there there are more books about women artists in the past that than I was expecting. You know, and there are actually, you know, 19th century books on on women artists and even earlier and even 18th and 17th and 16th century um, articles and books. But, you know, they are fairly few and far between. And, um, of course, there was extraordinary scholarship done in the 1970s with historians like Griselda Pollock, of uh, Jermaine Greer, of Linda Nochlin and others, Janine Burke in Australia. So, you know, there, there was... There was a lot of research done, and um, of course, there's more and more and more being done now, um, with stories being unearthed of women and their biographies. And of course, you know, when when you look at paintings by women in the past, unless they wrote about themselves, so much is speculation. You know, of course, there's a lot of speculation in the mirror and the palette about what might have motivated these people, because often all we have to go on is their paintings. When you have artists who also wrote autobiographies, there's a real hallelujah moment. Mm. Like, for example, Marie Antoinette's favourite painter, Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun in Paris, um, when she was in her 80s, she wrote her autobiography, which is, you know, an incredible source, resource to try and understand the mind of someone who became a painter then and why. Yeah, you do become a bit of a sleuth, I must say. But, you know, there is a lot of material out there as well. I feel like this might be an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it because I was surprised when I read the book of actually how famous some of these women were, like even in the 1600s Mm. or 1700s, and I just Mm. did not realise they would have reached that level of fame. But why do you think they were forgotten and we just, you know, don't know their name? I mean, that's that's the question, isn't it? Uh, I mean, as you say, many of these women were, you know, were really famous. You know, you have Sophonisba Anguissola in the Renaissance. You know, she was one of... She was a very important and very famous painter in her time. She was the most prolific self-portraitist between Dürer and Rembrandt. Um, But, you know, soon after she died, again, she sort of begins to be excluded. You've got Judith Leister in Holland, who was, uh, you know, a a rival to Franz Hals in in Holland in the 17th century. You've got Mary Beale, who was a very prolific self-portraitist in 17th century England. And, you know, why they were excluded from the history books, why art historians in the 20th century, such as Gombrich, did not include any women in their hugely best-selling histories of art is a big question. And 
the only answer I can think of really is that because art history was for too long assumed to be a history of white male achievement and it was part of the patriarchal structures that dominate not only art history but also the very cultures that we live in in the West. So, you know, it's just again, once again, another example of women's exclusion from major narratives. And because women were for too long assumed to be wives or mothers or nuns, and those were the roles that were ascribed to them. I mean, I, I, I opened my book, The Mirror and the Palette, with a quote from an amazing book, The City of Ladies by Christine de Pisan, who was possibly one of the first women to make a living from art in the early 15th century. And in 1405, she wrote, there are extraordinary women out there, I'm paraphrasing, you just have to look for them. You know, and she was saying that six uh, more than 600 years ago. So, you know, it's an old story. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's and it's still so new at the same time, which is kind of mm. incredible. Mm. Did it make you reevaluate the contemporary moment? And I guess what's happening with Me Too and a lot of revisionist art exhibitions that are centering women. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really exciting now. There has been such a massive movement to include the voices of artists who have been previously excluded, not just women, but queer artists and artists of colour, Indigenous artists. You know, I think it's really exciting what's happening in, in art now. And, and it, it's a great testament to the fact that art history is a work in progress. It's not carved in stone. And that was Jennifer Higgy. You can listen to the first episode of this series with David Noonan, as well as interviews with artists including Patricia Piccinini, Vivian Binns, Gareth Sansom, John Walsley and Louise Weaver. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features, exhibitions and interviews from across the country.